Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad, and that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes, and it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads, and I get that. And the good news is, you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top, click on Try Free and you're in. On Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad and then on with today's episode. I'll confess, sometimes I let my podcast playlist get out of hand and I get way behind. But there's one show that I subscribe to and any new episode goes right to the top of the queue. That's the Jordan Harbinger Show. That's because I never have to figure out, okay, is this one going to be interesting or do I wait for the next one like I do for some shows? Because Jordan's conversations are always a must-listen for me. He talks to fascinating people from any category you can think of. Authors, scientists, athletes, you name it. He's talked to undercover cops who posed as mafia and the actual career mafia hitmen. And the stories he gets out of these people, just incredible. In one episode, he talked to Paul Holes. You might know that name if you're into true crime. He's the former investigator who uses really advanced methods to solve cold cases, including the Golden State Killer. And another one I really enjoyed was with Sam Harris, an author and neuroscientist who promotes skepticism, and he doesn't mind taking on some seriously controversial topics like politics or religion. That one's going to make you think. Whenever a new episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show pops up, I already know it's going to be an episode that I'll enjoy listening to, and I'll bet you will too. For some episode recommendations, check out jordanharbinger.com start or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. What Was That Like? contains adult language and content and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to What Was That Like? I'm your host, Scott Johnson. This is the show where we talk to regular people, people just like you or just like me, who have found themselves in an extremely unusual situation. We'll hear their stories and get inside their head because we all want to know, what was that like? More information about each episode at whatwasthatlike.com. Here we go. Kathmandu, the capital city of Nepal, April 25, 2015. A 7.8 magnitude earthquake struck without warning. 
A quake so big it shook Mount Everest. Now the United States is sending a disaster response team and $1 million in aid. Already reports of more than 1,000 people dead, and that figure is expected to rise. The quake struck just outside Nepal's capital of Kathmandu earlier today, around noon local time, uh, with tremors felt across the region in India, Bangladesh, and Tibet. In the end, nearly 9,000 people lost their lives and close to 22,000 were injured. Entire villages were destroyed, leaving hundreds of thousands homeless. And not far from the epicenter was Mount Everest. There were a lot of people on the mountain that day, and 19 climbers were killed. Michael Churton is an adventure filmmaker based out of New York City. He's done work for National Geographic, NBC, ABC, Discovery, and the Science Channel. He's been doing this for more than 20 years. Michael was at Mount Everest Base Camp when the earthquake happened, and he was right in the path of the deadly avalanche that was triggered immediately after. And even though he survived, not all of his teammates came back. Michael was on the mountain to document an adventure. But what happened that morning has turned that project into a documentary that he's currently working on to tell what happened on Mount Everest's deadliest day on record. This film is called Bound to Everest, and you can see the trailer on his website, which is boundtoeverest.com. I'll have links to everything in the show notes for this episode. And if you want to support this podcast and get exclusive access to bonus episodes, you can do that at whatwasthatlike.com slash support. And now, please enjoy my conversation with Michael. If you had to describe Mount Everest in one word, what would that word be? Gigantic. <laughs> okay. I guess that makes sense. I mean, it's got to be almost overwhelming when you're standing there looking at it. Well, uh, it is. I mean, the, that particular mountain itself from base camp, you can't really see that much because it has a, a, a mountain in front of it uh, that's part of it, but you can't see the whole thing. Uh, but as you trek up towards base camp, uh, as you watch the different mountains, uh, such as uh, Amadablam, you kind of just feel like there's these giants that are around you and you're at 14,000 feet and they're at 22 or 23,000 feet. Then as you you know, ease your way up, you know, these mountains are just bigger and bigger and bigger. So things like base camp, though, it doesn't seem that wide is really almost four miles across, uh, just a really large section. Cause these things are just these massive peaks that just kind of dwarf anything for me that I had seen before and pretty much on the planet. I'd like to have you, I mean, obviously I've never been to Everest and I would guess most of the people listening to this have not been there. I'd like to have you kind of explain the logistics of getting from somewhere in the U.S. to uh, base camp and, you know, what's involved with actually getting there. I know there's multiple sections and sectors of the trip. And then from there, getting up to the summit. Can you just describe that for someone that has no idea? Sure. Uh, so say you're leaving from New York, uh, which is where I leave. You usually fly uh, if you fly the Eastern direction and we'll land in like an Abu Dhabi, depending or Turkey or something like that, some way halfway. And then from there connect to a Nepal. So it's about a 27 to 35 hour flight, depending on, on what flight you get. And then 
once you're in Kathmandu, you're landing, uh, it's, it's a pretty high elevation. It's about 5,000 feet or so. So you kind of land into the middle of the city, which you'll usually meet your team. You know, a lot of times for these big expeditions, you've signed up to a big group. You're not just arriving and finding a team. Like you've been talking for months and training. And so you go there and usually there's someone with it holding a sign at the airport to help you get to the, to the hotel. Uh, and then you'll be at the hotel for two to three days, depending on, your group's uh, schedule uh, and each will vary between expedition. Is that big? And you're in there, you're there for two or three days in Kathmandu because you're waiting for other people to usually, yeah, to get, because like, for example, with my, the expedition I went with in 2015, we had someone from every continent except Antarctica. So just to get all those people in, you usually want a day in case the bags were late, a day to go out to, you know, go out to dinner, meet everybody, do some uh, gear checks to maybe see if anybody's missing something. You can much easier and much cheaper get it in Kathmandu than you can once you get up north uh, or up into the mountains. And so, so you'll, you'll do that and kind of just enjoy some sites and things. People go to the monkey temple and other types of sites there. And then after that, you'll basically be ready to go. And everyone gets up around 3am, meet in the lobby at 4am. And your goal is to uh, take a twin otter plane. It's like a turboprop plane that takes about 20 people. And that will take about 45 minutes to fly you into the mountains. And then you'll, that's kind of where your trek begins. Uh, so, and you land, you go from 4,000 to 9,000 feet. So it's a big elevation jump to kind of just jump right in there. Do you notice that elevation change as soon as you get off the plane? Yeah. The air is much cleaner. That's usually the first thing you notice, but it's also a bit thinner. And, you know, as you get up, there's less oxygen in the air for your body to use. So it just takes a while for your body to climatize to the different elevations. So that's now you've flown into Lukla and from there, so, uh, so basically the, the overview picture is over the next nine or 10 days, again, depending on what expedition you're on, you will stop in these small towns along the way. So it'll be, uh, Fakting, Namche, uh, Tengbashe, Dingbashe, Loboshe, Gorkshep, and then Everest Base Camp. And at each of these, you'll stay a night. So at some of them, you'll stay two nights and just do a climatization hike during the day. And it's a really, uh, for anyone coming from sea level or, you know, not great elevation, it's really about getting your body to acclimate to the air. Uh, it's hard to describe, but I know on, you know, my first trip, kind of the biggest, uh, biggest way I felt the air was we were at about 15,000 feet. I was, I had felt bad a few days, but now I was feeling good. We had some super athletes on our team. So I thought I'd try and impress them by running across a quick valley and then sprinting up a hill to the top of them. And when I got up to the top of them, it felt like my chest was just being pressed on and I couldn't get any oxygen in there. I had to strip my jacket off, just barely was just gasping for air. And it felt like I was suffocating, but I was in completely open air. And it was this weird, weird situation that kind of just gave me an idea of what it's like, especially if you get higher, because as you get to base camp, it's about half the air that's at sea level and when you get, if you go all the way to the Everest top, it's uh, one third the air that is at sea level. So from Lukla to base camp, obviously you're on foot, you're trekking the whole time, you're carrying all your gear. Uh, or are you carrying it or you've got Sherpas? I mean, you, you can, if you're, if you're super, super human, but most of the time, what will happen is you'll carry about a 20 pound bag. The expedition will take care of hiring either porters or yaks. So at the beginning of the day, you give them a big, big, a big duffel bag. They take that and either a guy will carry it, uh, or they'll put it on a yak depending on how they're, uh, doing their logistics. And then you just have kind of a day pack just to get you by until you get to the lodge or the tea house that night. 
what's the what's the overall distance? It's about thirty six miles, and you ra- you go from Lukla, uh, you go up, up about nine thousand, just under nine thousand feet. To, so you're from nine nine thousand feet up to seventeen thousand five, so about eight thousand five hundred feet of elevation change. But for a lot of people, including myself, it's the first time you've ever been above twelve thousand feet or thirteen. So you're finding out, especially with climatization, you find out how your body reacts only when you are there. So you could be a super athlete on sea level and then, but for some reason your body just doesn't adjust that well. And that can easily be remedied by going down one village and just waiting a couple nights as you wait for your body to process and, and make more red blood cells. And you just don't know till you get there. Yeah. You just don't know. I mean, I, the times for me, uh, the first time that I went, I didn't use, uh, there's a, uh, a drug that you can use that can help you climatize better. And I didn't use it that time and noticed that, uh, around 11,000 feet, I got really tired and had to just kind of basically everybody went for a hike and I just needed to lay down for about 24 hours. But then the next day I felt fine. And it, the same thing would happen then again at 17,500 feet, but at the levels in between, I felt fine. Like I cl- gradually climatized. So Anyways, that's kind of the mystery of, of things up there. That's the wild card for a lot of people. So some, a lot of stuff you can plan for, but you can't, not everything though. Yeah. I mean, again, if you have time for the most part, uh, I think you can usually, it's, you know, people that get in trouble is they try to push it too fast and you just have to know if you're starting to develop again, it's like, if you go down 2000 feet, then you're uh, safe. The, the mountain climbing saying is, you know, sleep, high, climb high and sleep low. And so you're constantly trying to push up an elevation to get your lungs used to it, but then bring it back down. That does better. And then once you get to base camp, that's like, okay, now you've gotten to the base of where everybody's starting for, for a lot of people that in itself would be just a, a trek in itself, just to get to base camp. I know someone that uh, a couple of people actually that have done that had no intention of summiting, but just getting to base camp was the adventure. Absolutely. I, I mean, the base base camp itself, the amount of, you know, hundreds of, I, I think the numbers is about hundreds of thousands of people during normal years will visit base camp and are trekking. So there's constantly trekking both in the spring and the fall season. And so they make up kind of the largest number of people coming through and leaving. And the climbers uh, who will live at base camp as they start to their ascent up the mountain, they make up a minority of the actual people that are there visiting. So you just kind of have a constant flood of people when the seasons are nice and they're nicer for longer than the mountain is climbable. So it's, it's a very popular destination. And just the last time I was there, it was in the, in the fall. So there wasn't a big base camp set up, but you know, people get up there, they celebrate, they take team pictures. And once you land in Lukla, it's a nine day journey, you know, so just getting there before, you know, you have three to four to five days of getting there. So it is a, it's quite a commitment. It's not a day trip. The earthquake and the avalanche that we're talking about happened on April 25 of 2015. But your story really starts with a previous trip to Mount Everest in 2014. What was that about and, and, and what happened on that trip? In, uh, yes. So in 2014, I, I was working for NBC News uh, and a group within them. And uh, they got assigned this project where uh, this guy, Joby Ogwin, was going to jump off the top of Mount Everest and wingsuit to the bottom. And we were hired to produce this live show. We broadcast it all live. So it was kind of this incredible undertaking. And to do a live show from Mount Everest, the logistical challenges were massive. And we had 440 cases that needed to get 
up there. And since there are no roads, I mean, everything goes up on yaks. They can take it so far on a helicopter, but it was, you know, the back of yaks is what uh, took most of that up there. And, and for me, it was my first experience uh, in the mountains of that level. I, I'd been into outdoors when I was younger, but after living in New York City for 15 years, I kind of had lost touch with that side of me. And so it was, it was exciting for me to all of a sudden uh, be working on a project that I felt I was doing what I would do in my free time. I was living this adventure and, oh, this is my job. And I just, I felt very lucky and very fortunate and had a great group of people. I mean, I, I trekked in with a team of 18 people from NBC and some of them, you know, we're still really good friends today. So that was, that was pretty incredible. And, and we made it our way to base camp and we were there for three days. And then on the fourth day, which would have been April 18th, 2014, in the morning, you know, I woke and I just heard a lot of commotion in the base camp and I unzipped and saw one of my coworkers said, what's going on? And it's been a big avalanche. Some guys, you know, it's not looking good. Like let's, let's film it. Let's get, you know, we're news. We got to, we got to cover this. And so we kind of just jumped into this news role of covering what uh, would be till that time in 2014, the deadliest day in Everest history. And what had happened was in the Kumbu Icefall, which is the first stage climbing Everest, a very more people die there. So it's a very dangerous area. Um, some ice from above uh, on the mountain collapsed. And, you know, we're talking like school bus block size of ice collapsed down thousands of feet. And unfortunately, there were uh, there was a bit of a backup and Sherpa were, were underneath it. And so 16 Sherpa would lose their life on that day. And so we would be down with the NBC crew and we had really long lenses. And so we were able to film all this, all this kind of uh, what was a rescue and then ends up becoming uh, just a recovery. So it changed from the kind of this incredible stunt of, you know, pushing yourself to the max to just this very sad, somber moment of just how deadly the mountain can be. So then a year later, how did you get involved with the trip for 2015? So when I uh, when I came back from from Everest, there was just a part of me that that really wanted to go back, and I felt I think I just felt like if I could picture myself anywhere in the world, like I want to be back there, and I, I kind of made it a goal that I would do everything I could to try and get on a crew or find some production filming there, and hopefully because I was there the year before, that would give me an advantage to be on that team. And uh, as January approached, I realized nothing really had filtered out. Garrett and I, uh, Garrett Madison, had uh, who we had met the year before on the 2014. He was to lead Joby to the top, so he was kind of the main guide for Joby's team. And so we had uh, we had stayed in touch. He would come to New York from time to time, so uh, you know we'd grab a beer and uh, and he goes to me. He's like, "Well, why don't you just grab a camera and come with me?" And I'm like, "That." That's exactly what I want to do. And so that was what you've been waiting to hear. Oh, yeah. So I had, you know, fortunately paid off my musician debts from years before and saved up a little bit of money and then basically put that into camera gear and kind of put camera gear on credit cards and gave my two weeks to work. And, you know, three weeks later, I was on a plane flying to do my first uh, first project of my life. And that would be filming a team going to Mount Everest. And it was just, it was a big group of people. Discovery had kind of pre-talked to people because they had, they were talking about maybe doing a show, but they would cancel that. So everybody was, most people were prepped that there might be a show happening. So I think they were excited at the fact that someone would be coming documenting it. And for the most part, most people were very open to being filmed and very gracious with letting me be there because it does change the environment a little bit if there's a camera around. 
Can you talk about a few of the people that were in, in your group? Yeah. I mean, so, well, the, the head guide was Garrett Madison. So he's a very uh, accomplished uh, mountain climber and guide. Uh, so he's been doing this for a very long time. And we've met in 2014 as part of the uh, expedition that we were on in the show. And so we stayed in contact. And so he's a very accomplished climber. He had uh, just after I had met him, he went to K2 and uh, led one of the first commercial groups to the top, which was a really big deal. K2 is some people uh, say Mount Everest isn't that difficult to climb. Those same people will let you know that K2 is very difficult to climb. And so uh, so he was there. There was also Eve Jirwang. She, I had actually introduced her to Garrett in 2014, right after after the tragedy, we were down in Kathmandu at the hotel and I met her in the lobby and then I introduced her to Garrett. They then uh, would connect over the next couple months or whatnot and I'd find out that she would be the base camp doctor. So they were uh, on a download, they were uh, they were dating, but they weren't really, he didn't really want it to get in the way of his, um, of doing what he's doing because ultimately people are putting their lives in his hand. And along the way, they were very uh, professional about that. I mean, you didn't see him holding hands. You didn't, you know, a lot of people didn't even know that they were going, that they were dating. So that's, that's how incognito um, that kind of relationship was. And, uh, and so then we had another one named uh, Vibike Seflin and she is a Norwegian army officer. I think she's a captain these days. I mean, she had an incredible story where she, she goes and works in combat zones so she can earn extra money for hazard pay. So then she can go climb mountains. There was Haley and Randall Erkenbrack, and they were a daughter-father team. Uh, so she was in her early 30s. He was around 55, and they were going to do this together. And so they both trained, and it's kind of fun to have that dynamic of a father-daughter team. Uh, but they were more they were more like friends and buddies. And and we had a, a Ron Nissen was an Australian uh, who was 70 years old. So that was pretty incredible in itself that, but he felt this would be the ultimate challenge and he wanted to give it a go, but he had a very, he was a, uh, um, a Vietnam vet and just had a very militaristic mind. And just like, you know, my main goal is to come back alive. He promised his wife, his main goal was to come back alive, then to come back with all his fingers, then to come back summiting. And that, that was the priorities that she had assigned. Another one was, uh, Andrea Cordona and then, uh, Carl Nessler. And so they were boyfriend girl at the time. And she was the first uh, woman from Central America to uh, climb Mount Everest. But anyways, great cast of characters. And there were another 10 or so expedition people as well that were along the way, plus staff, which was about 50. And there were three Western guides and then a main, main Sherpa guy named Purba. So you arrived, the, the, the group arrived at base camp around the 13th of April. Can you take us from the time you got to base camp you know, what was a typical day and take us right up to what happened? Uh, you know, when we arrived at base camp, it was a, it's a cell, it's a bit of a celebration. And for me, especially like I, I hadn't trained, I, th- I think I had hiked enough, but I hadn't trained I had about a 40 pound bag on. So as we were about six days into the, uh, with all my camera stuff and my laptop, cause I just wanted to keep it safe. But then I realized like I would, my arms and shoulders were starting to burn a bit. So getting to base camp would mean you no longer have to carry that backpack anymore. You know, as you can put a lighter load in it, keep stuff in a tent. So in one sense, it was just, uh, it's such a, uh, a benchmark to get there. And, and, you know, you have a day or two where you kind of, everybody just kind of relaxes. They, get, they give you the day off guides are, you know, getting the last finishing things together at the, at the camp to make sure the solar panels work. Um, there has been a team of Sherpa there probably a month earlier that, uh, go 
Basecamp itself, the overall Basecamp, so for everyone for Basecamp, is about a mile long and uh, probably about a half a mile wide. And it is on a moving glacier, the Kumbu Glacier. And so every season that glacier is moving. So if you put a wood structure or something on it, it would break down. So you have to put tents on it. And it's not flat. So uh, usually in early March, a group, each team sends up an early group of, of Sherpa that will basically use chisels to make flat areas to put tents. And depending on, I mean, we had for just the clients and, and the guides and uh, we probably had 25 tents or so. And then you have a big dining tent and a big communications tent and a cooking tent. So it's just kind of this incredible little city. And you're one of, we're one of maybe 40 other expeditions. So, so there's 40 other little base camps within the big base camp that, that is there. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni, She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV, and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing, two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science, and all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what, code 25what. Hey, this is Scott. 
Did you know we offer a premium feed of this show that is completely ad-free and there are bonus episodes? Go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus or just click the link in the show notes of any episode to learn more and to sign up. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can sign up right there in the app by clicking Try Free at the top of the episode list. And I hope to see you in the premium feed soon. So that's kind of the first thing. And then as people kind of get uh, oriented, you usually do a puja, which is a ceremony that's very important with the local culture or the Sherpa culture. And it's basically a uh, ceremony where you ask the god Chamalanga, which is uh, the name of Mount Everest for the local culture, if it's okay to put step on you, basically. Can I put my foot upon you? Can you give me permission to do this? And I will, you know, be respectful. And and so they bring a llama, and they uh, for about four hours the llama sings chants, and then at the end uh, it kind of turns into a little bit of a celebration with dancing, and uh, they have a local brew that they make out of yak's milk. Uh, the name's for escaping me now. And so anyway, it's a kind of a day for everybody to get together, but no climbing really takes place until then. And then after that, what the guides start doing is they'll set up these courses on uh, kind of lower parts of the Kumbu glacier that are steep, where you can practice your ladders, practice clicking in, and we'll do it in base camp because it's really about getting everybody synced in because the, uh, the, the range of experience of the climbers is, you know, anywhere from five to 10. I mean, hopefully nobody's beginner at zero, but there's experts there and there's people that have climbed one mountain or maybe they climbed one mountain, but it was eight months ago. And this is your first time in crampons and that back. And, uh, and so it's just about making sure that you are all kind of on the same, uh, under the same direction and rowing in the same, same direction. So they, uh, so anyway, so they would then do have day, you know, a couple days where they did some, uh, courses like that to just work on those skills. And then, uh, we'd have, you know, you'd have another rest day and then maybe you'd do a climatization hike to one of the big mountains near you that you could get to without having to do mountaineering. It was more of a, a hike. We did do a, a quick two hour run into the Kumbu Icefall. So I did get to experience that for a little while, got to put on crampons and had the whole thing. And, and, uh, we didn't go over the more dangerous parts. Uh, we turned back before then, but, uh, it was a pretty incredible experience. I mean, especially knowing how dangerous it is, but how beautiful it is. And it's, it's just such a dichotomy of you know, just all the ice, but you know, that at any moment that ice could shift and that shifting ice could fall on you, fall on someone behind you, fall on the rope. So at any point, you really are just trying to move through there as fast as possible, but it is easy to kind of get lost in its allure and its beauty. For me, I, th- I think it would be the, I mean, I've seen some video of people going through Kumbu Icefall and it's, I feel like my biggest fear would be, you know, they set up ladders going across these big gaps and if you fell off the ladder or you slipped off and you fall into that hole, who knows how far down it goes and there's no, there's no coming out of that. Right. Well, I mean, yes, it's it, who, exactly. Who knows how far, I mean, ideally you're, you're, um, you know, one important thing is that there is a, a line, a fixed line that they make from basically the start of the Kumbu icefall. Um, a group of Sherpa will get there early called the icefall doctors. Uh, and then another group of Sherpa will take it beyond the icefall. But as a climber, you're always hooked into this rope and you can use a, a Jumanji that will give friction to the rope. So that can help you climb. So if you were on one of those ladders, you should still be attached to that in two places in theory. Now, you know, anchors can always come out and 
worst case scenarios can happen. But you know, and in theory, you're always attached to a line that every 15 feet or so is put in with a ice screw or something. Uh, but that also is what makes the the lineup when there's so many people going, like you have to clip unclip as someone passes you and clip and there can be hundreds of people going up and coming down at the same time, or you have to wait on the ladder for a line of people because there's a, a bottleneck on this. So there's a brief, sometimes there could be a brief period of exposure or risk as you unclip while somebody goes by. Right. Yeah. I mean, those are certainly important and that's, and you don't know who these people are or their level of, I mean, that's, that's kind of the big question mark, you know, I mean, there's an etiquette that everyone should have. Uh, and I think a lot of people do, but there's also people that their climbing is all they care about and get out of the way. Or, I mean, I haven't spent that much time in there, but it is, it is, everybody's there for a reason, for their own reason. A lot of people have spent a lot of money to be there, if, especially if you're not in their expedition, you know, and they don't know you. I mean, hopefully everybody treats like it's human beings and stuff, but it is a, uh, it is a, a business to get people up and down and each expedition has their own schedule. And that's how they book next year is they got people up and down safely. And so, so they have to really shepherd their expedition people first. The overall way that you climb Mount Everest, it has been uh, that you usually would do it in a thing called rotations. So again, the idea of climbing high and sleeping low. So your first rotation, uh, which is what the group would go on near on. So we got there April 13th, around April 22nd. So they were there for just under two weeks, kind of in base camp training, climatizing, and then they go for camp one. And so their goal is to go to camp one, stay there a night, go up to camp two, and then come back to camp one and basically push up a little bit, not all the way up the mountain. Uh, we should tell people that from base camp to the summit, there are these four camps, right? That's what you're talking about. Right. So if you were to do it straight, uh, so say you were all, you've, you're already climatized, you get to the end of your rotation. So the second rotation, maybe you go to camp three and come back. Um, though I've heard recently that groups are skipping that rotation and just going, going without it to make the trips shorter. But essentially it would be about five days to get from the start of the Kumbu Icefall and to get all the way to, you go to camp one, which is about 19,000 feet. Camp two is about 21,000 feet. Camp three is like 23,000 feet. Camp four, I don't know the exact elevation, but it's below 29,000 feet. And so so you would kind of to do all that. And then you also have to get back down as soon as possible because you're likely to have used all your oxygen. And the most dangerous part is the way down. Is camp four at the summit or how far past? I think camp four is, uh, it is kind of at the, uh, there's like a saddle between, there's a mountain next to Everest called Lhotse, which is third highest mountain in the world. And so uh, it's kind of at a saddle right there. And then from there, I think generally most groups would leave around 9 p.m. or 10 p.m. at night and then hopefully get to the summit by 4 or 5 a.m. to give you an idea. Spend 20 minutes at the summit, turn around, come down and either rest at camp four for a little bit and then continue down. So um, much of your group was they were on their very first rotation. And so they were at uh, camp one and they were making their way to camp two. So this would be, and then a this would be April 25th. And, you know, for me at the time, right when they were leaving, I'd come down with a flu. There had been some type of bug going through camp and I had finally gotten it and it was just really dizzy and couldn't really uh, stand for very long. So I, I would get up when and film if there was something going on, like when they left for their uh, rotation, I got up and filmed them, but then I was pretty much just 
out of commission for several days. So finally, April 25th, I woke up and I felt much better. I got up at about 5 a.m. and you know, you're the only one around and you know, things don't really get going until six or seven. The camp is much emptier because normally we have the entire climbing team and Sherpa there. Most of them are all up at camp one or camp two. So it's kind of a skeleton crew of staff there. And then uh, left in base camp is myself, Eve, the doctor, Davi, who is a son of one of the climbers who came to support him. And then uh, climber Ron, who had stomach hadn't been feeling well while they were hiking up for or doing the first rotation. So he came back. And so he was just going to sit one out and see how he felt. So that was kind of the start of the morning. And, you know, for me, I, I had a very, uh, it was kind of this, uh, I woke up and, and maybe it was just feeling better and feeling energy. Like, you know, the first day after you don't feel sick anymore, you're like, wow, I, I actually feel good. And standing up feels good. And just kind of had like a serendipitous moment just to take in kind of just where I was. And like, you know, thinking of four months ago, five months ago, like I want to be at Mount Everest, like working on a documentary and wow, here I am doing that. You know, I felt very fortunate, very lucky. I also was writing some articles for some other adventure magazines on the side that I would be working on that day. And so I just kind of felt like uh, I, it was like the, a serendipitous moment in the sense of uh, it seemed like everything had kind of come together and all the struggles of the past and all the failures, like they were all part of this kind of stepping stone to get to this moment. And so I just, you know, you, you take a moment in just to say thank you because I know, uh, you know, we've all had failures in life and it's, it's sometimes to pick yourself back up and keep going. It's like, what's the point? And maybe that failure is to bring you to your next destination or move you along the journey. And then it would be, uh, ironic that, that then around, so around 11 or so we were all sitting in the dining tent. I think Davi was in the tent next to us, which was a communication tent. And this is a tent that can fit about 25 people at a table. So like I said, much smaller. We just have four of us kind of in the middle. Uh, I'm working on one of these articles and then we, we feel the earth move. And I had felt one earthquake in California a long time ago. Uh, it was kind of my only earthquake. So gave me just a quick, that's an earthquake. Uh, the first second that I felt it. So, so I, got up. I ran and got my camera. I turned it on as fast as I could as the ground moved back and forth. It was very hard to stand. You could hear the uh, the puja. There's a, a giant wood pole that was kind of slapping back and forth, making a, just a crazy sound. So as I got rolling, all the, the rumbling st- stopped, but, and we, uh, we had come out of the tent. So Davi and Eve were standing there and Ron, and we were all looking over, up at Everest because that's where all our friends were. And of course, after experience last year, you just have this sinking feeling of like, this is happening again. Like this is horrible. And so I, I was filming and as I, as I was filming, I was kind of looking for different shots. Cause again, you're kind of now in your own world. Like what can I capture? What tells the story? And so I, uh, as I filmed Eve and Davi and then kind of film Everest again. And then I filmed over uh, with some of the Sherpa that and see what they were doing. And it was over their shoulder. Then I saw just this massive wall of white coming at us with rocks shooting out this incredible speed that I can't judge how fat, when it's going to get up to us, but it's not going to be long. And it's literally like a building coming, falling on top of us. And so when that happened, I yelled, get down and you'll get down again. And I put myself, uh, so I put myself in a precarious place where I basically decided to post up against a small kind of, uh, wood uh, stone structure near the puja altar. It was essentially a, a chimney. If you think about that. And for 
those 12 seconds between the time that it hit and seeing it, in my mind, what made the most sense was to put myself between the avalanche and this rock structure. Because I felt if I put my shoulder against it, I would somehow be able to hold on. I didn't want to get blown away. That was kind of the thoughts going through my head at the time. Just don't get blown away. So if I put my shoulder against that, I can hold on. Oh, so you were you were on the side of the rock structure where the avalanche was coming from? Yes, which is it's it's just a weird it's it's a decision that I would not make normally. It's obviously you would want something to block the avalanche from you, uh, and it's just kind of one of those things that your mind just. I was a, my mind just went to some place. I mean, I was frozen. It just felt like there was no way that any of us were going to survive. And so Ron jumped immediately into a tent. He had the training from his Vietnam days that if you said, get down, he doesn't ask where they just get down. So he jumped into one of the long tents and I think Eve jumped into the other tent and Davi kind of ran off. So we had like a couple seconds, you know, basically I put my heads, set my camera down, and put my hands over my head and had about, you know, one or two seconds. And then this just massive blast just hit me into the wall. And then things are a little fuzzy, but I never, I never lost consciousness. It was just uh, this blackness as you just listen to the wind blow. And it went on for five or six minutes of just wind blowing across. And so as finally it starts to let up, I tried to stand up and, and, you know, there's this, part of me that's just like, I need to get my camera. Like I, something's happened. I need to film and I need to document this. And as I stood up, I could just see blood come down onto the snow. And then I'm like, okay, maybe I need to take a beat. So Ron came up and told us, you know, you need to go find warm clothes. You look up all of the 30, 40 tents that were around us. All of them are gone. Uh, some of them are just collapsed. Some of them are nowhere to be found. And uh, Ron, who had jumped in the tent in front of me, was 30 feet over to the left now. But he was okay, a little couple bruises. But for the most part, he was fine. He just kind of got pushed across uh, the ice and rock. Davi had been pushed down in a perfectly good place. And as we went to get – so I found found my tent, found some warm clothes, but then also realized I couldn't stand. Um, so, you know, and then looking at the faces of the Sherpa that came over to help me, I look like I must've been in pretty bad condition. So they set us down. Uh, there was one or two tents that they had set up that were still okay and set us up in there. And uh, by then I started vomiting a lot due to the concussion. And, and then we were, we were asking, so where's Eve and no one had seen Eve. And, and so we basically, you know, at the time I didn't really have any extra capacity to do much. Like I was just, just sit there and just try to stop vomiting. And so within a few minutes, uh, our base camp manager, Bola, he was like, you guys need to go to Gork Shep. Like we don't have anything to take care of you here. You know, we have no, uh, no shelter, no food, no heat, you know, it's 30 degrees. It's going to be negative 20 in six hours. So through that, then we got up and started kind of this, this March down there, down to Gork Shep, which is about three miles away. And Gork Shep is the, is the last of the villages when you're coming up, it's the last village that you stay in before you get to base camp. Yes. Yeah. So, it's, so there were still structures there. They were able to radio down and get us a room. And so we just started making our way, but even just getting up and standing was kind of a, a big effort for me. So as I was walking, I looked over to where my camera was at and I thought I should get my camera. And I just, I was just so weak that I, I was like, I can't, I can't carry anything else. So, so I just started marching forward and, you know, we kind of did the, 
best we could. It was a very slow march, and uh, but partially, I think, because Ron was with us, I, I felt a certain uh, a certain amount of wanting to appear tough, you know, and and he, you know, and just kind of keep going. And but then as we would, I thought we were getting closer, and you're like, oh, I think that's the last bend. And then you get to that bend, and there's another bend that looks exactly like it. And you're like, maybe that's the last one. By the time I got to the fourth one, I realized that wasn't a good idea, but we did get finally to, uh, to the bend so that then we could see Gork Shep about a mile away, half a mile away, but at least you could see it. So you're getting there. And then another, uh, then an aftershock happened. It was about a 6.8, uh, aftershock. The original earthquake was 7.8. And at that time I was uh, so spent physically and I looked, there was a, a big overhang above us and I just was waiting for snow to rush over and, take us out. Cause there was nowhere to go. I didn't have any energy. I was just like, all right, well, this is it. I guess you got me here. And fortunately nothing came over, whatever. There was no snow up there to be shaken down. So we made our way to Gork Shep and someone outside asked if I needed medical help. I said, yes, we're going to be up in this, uh, this tea house. And so there were, had just been randomly some nurses. There was a medic who was just there trekking to base camp basically on their way up. And so they kind of went into full uh, full medical mode and help clean up my nose. And, and, you know, it was broken. It looked like I had some broken bones in my face, but from what they could tell from the basic, I was okay. I was just really tired and I was still kind of vomiting for the next day or so, but eventually, eventually I slept for a while. So you and Ron made it to Gork Shep along with some others. Uh, Ron, yeah. Davi, Davi was with us as well. And then one Sherpa was our guide to get there. Okay. And how long were you there? We were there for two nights. The next day, Ron was able to, he met a, a climber who had, uh, was with a different team, uh, but his company, I guess, had instructed him that they were sending a helicopter for him. He was going to hike out, but they wanted to get a helicopter and get him rescued. So they, so he's like, I got extra seats and I was I was pretty banged up, especially in in our lodge. So he offered to give me a ride and give Ron a ride. And Davi wanted to go back to base camp uh, to get to meet up with his father when they would come down because they they had their own situation going on up there as well. So we uh, we waited for it, and it wouldn't be until the morning. I think it was the morning of the twenty seventh. It finally came, and we were able to kind of just chop her out and and just the change of elevation. I mean, we were at uh, we were at about. 16,000 feet, 17,000 feet at Gork Shep. And we basically flew straight to, to Kathmandu down to 5,000 feet. And just when you're that climatized, it's like your body just gets so much more energy when the air gets full. So from my ambulotic coma sense, you know, coma type thing that I was in for the last days where I basically just laid there, I had Tylenol is the only drug they had and ice to put on my face and then just sleeping. I immediately felt better from getting down there. I mean, there was a great sense of relief that we were kind of out of this area. Cause I was, I was, you know, just, I was absolutely scared and terrified. And you're just like, what, what are we going to do? Of course you got to be thinking too, this earthquake was so massive that, you know, you're thinking, okay, we just got to get to Kathmandu. That's when I can get help and everything's going to be okay. But that city had been destroyed as well. Yeah. It had no power, no water. Uh, we saw thousands of people outside of the airport trying to get, 
get a flight out, but there were no flights at the time because the uh, runway had cracked. So all of a sudden that was kind of a realization like, well, we've just left one disaster zone and now we're in another. Fortunately, the hotel we were at still had a generator and had water. So, and they had a, a courtyard in back that a lot of people had been sleeping in due to frequent aftershocks. So we were a little bit removed a lot of, uh, from what a lot of the local Nepalis, most of them were sleeping in parks and on streets because nobody wanted to be in a building as these aftershocks came through. So how did you hear about the rest of your team? When did you get the news about what had happened with them? We were had a little bit of radio contact at Gork Shept. And from what we heard from them was that they were all fine because we, we would have thought they would have had the biggest problems being up on the mountain, that they were all fine. One was a little sick, but it wasn't serious. And no one had heard of Eve from Eve. That's basically... We still had no report on where Eve was at. So so that's that was the news that we had. And then after we arrived in Kathmandu, I walked around and I walked to the local Nepali guide service that um, the Western guide services hire to do all the logistics. And so when I walked there to talk to them to get some news, that's when I found out that Eve had passed away um, and she had died that day, essentially. And so... So that was, you know, a big moment. It's it kind of, after not hearing anything about her, it, it you know, you have, certainly have a suspicion and then you're like, okay, well that, so that is what it is. And uh, so that was a very somber moment for sure to kind of have, have that, to just realize that, you know, this person standing next to you that you kind of shared this incredible adventure with over 25 days, really, I mean, I really got to know her very well. I filmed with her a lot, probably more than anyone else. So it was a very heartbreaking. It just, it's so ironic that the people that were up on the mountain, like stranded between camp one and camp two or somewhere in that area, that they are the ones that really were, were pretty much safe. And the people at base camp, you think base camp would be safer, but that's where all the disaster was. Yeah. I mean, this was the first time that base camp from what, people know this is the first time base camps ever been hit with an avalanche like that. I mean, the years before you would see avalanches, uh, you, you know, happening on the nearby mountains, but again, the width of the mountain is, uh, two, three miles across. So there's plenty of room for, you know, there's a gully for the snow to go. And, and so that then kind of keeps the, uh, base camp removed, but this was just, uh, this was the first time there was that big of a earthquake there since people have been up there. I'm picturing when you, when you found out that Eve didn't make it, I'm thinking about if I were in that position and you just got to sit and process that for a while, you know, not really believing that it could have really happened, but then did you kind of replay your last interactions with her? Uh, that, not that particular day. I mean, I, what ended up happening for me was, uh, because I used to work with NBC news Someone from New York called one of my friends and, you know, just see it, make sure I was okay. I don't like, I'll, he was the first person to get a hold of me out of anyone. Like my, my hotel room phone rang and I'm just like, who's calling me? And it's like, Hey, and just making sure I was okay. And then asked if uh, I'd be interested in working as a stringer for NBC news, had a team there 
would I want to work for them? And I'm like, yeah, I don't, you know, the, the team itself was still up at the mountain and they were anywhere from five to six to seven days to get down. So I was going to wait for everyone to come back and I knew I didn't want to just sit around. So I just tried to keep myself as busy as possible. So I went over and met with the executive producer and, and he just kind of put me to work right away. And I just, all I wanted to do was basically work as much as I could. But when the moment, you know, when the moment did come, finally I got a day off and Ron had been my roommate for several days. He had just left. So it was kind of my first day, just completely alone. Most of the group hadn't made it down yet. And so that was kind of, that was my big breakdown day, which it's hard to describe, but it's, there's like, you know, there's just something in you. And I think I tried to, I was just trying to keep myself busy. I re- uh, rearranged all the furniture in the hotel room so I could do yoga and stretch out and do some push-ups, And I think I did all of 10 minutes of that. And then I kind of just sat there. And at that point, that's when I kind of was completely overwhelmed by just what had happened. And you don't know why you're crying, but you're just crying and crying and crying. And uh, someone had found my iPhone, which was great because, uh, which I hadn't had. And literally that day gave it to me in the, in the lobby. And so I was able to put music on. That was, I hadn't really had any music and music's very important for me to process stuff and just generally. So I was able to, um, so I kind of decided I'd just go into the bathtub and put on the water, put on some music. And I was there for about four and a half hours, I think just kind of just going, replaying it, replaying it. Uh, the walls in there were white. You also have the other, you know, you feel a tremor from time to time. You're like, what happens if there's another earthquake trying to figure out, you know, how am I getting out? And just a very intense, somber time to just kind of let things come. Cause you know, you have the big questions of like, why out of four of us, would she be the one taken? you know, basically the last things that were said is after I said, get down, she said, uh, where should we go? And I, I, cause I was just in this stuttery, you know, frozen sense. I just was like, just get down. Like it did, doesn't matter. Is kind of how I felt at the time. And unfortunately it, I wish there was, you know, there's certainly something that had stayed with me is, you know, you wish you would have like just grabbed her and pulled her by you though. Granted, I wasn't putting myself in a very safe position as well, but it was just, uh, uh, you know, in those 12, 12 seconds, because I filmed it, I'm able to literally count the time. Yeah, because your camera was going the whole time, right? So, yeah. So it, it went through, it went for another 45 minutes after the avalanche hit. So it was a, a, just this really long clip. And so the microphone was working. So you can just really count out, like, I see it here and it's 14, you know, I'm sat down, there's about two seconds and then you get, you get hit. And so, uh, so I can hear that every time I go through it. And it's, it's even, you know, I've looked at the footage thousands of times and, but even now I'm working on a, working on some stuff, working on a trailer and just cutting that stuff together. It's still five years later, emotion, the emotions are still there. It's still kind of intense. And, and you're just like, every once in a while, you just have to like take a break uh, and be like, you know what? I can't, I can't do that right now. So I, I put it down for a few days and come back, but it's a, I believe it's a really important story for me to tell for personal reasons. And I think it's an important story. Uh, the overall story for other people to watch and to experience. Yeah. You're taking that footage along with what you had shot previously and creating a documentary. And, uh, we'll talk about that, but you, you went back to base camp in 2018, three years later. Why, why was that? So basically from the time, the time I got back to New York, all I wanted to do was work on this documentary. I was just like, I need to make this mean something and, and matter and, and been given this gift. Like the fact that the hard drive survived. I mean, the hard drives got 
were in the snow. They got blown hit by a hundred mile per hour wind. And when they brought them back down and they work, it just, there's a, some, uh, there's something powerful there that you feel like you just are obligated to do something with. And, and I remember when I was leaving Kathmandu, finally, there were uh, some, uh, Ministry workers, a lot of uh, religious workers, missionaries had come to help out uh, with the devastation, and kind of told him a little of my story. And and he's like, "Well, well, God must have a have a plan for you, have a reason for you." And at that time, I was like, "I, I, like, I'm not ready to start processing that yet." You know, I'm like, I, you know, I don't want to uh, that. And I took the path back just to kind of be okay. Going through it was a very long period, but you do feel like you know. Uh, I, you know, I've always been a storyteller, you know, I was a musician for a long time as a trying to be a storyteller. And then as you get into this sense to be a video and documentaries to be a storyteller, and it's like all of a sudden this, this story, you know, though it's difficult, been, you know, difficult to tell, it's like, this has been given to you. Like you've either stopped being a storyteller or you need to tell the story no matter what. So going back to 2018, basically I had been working off and on on the documentary and uh, kind of making different cuts. And then I'd go work for a couple months and then, you know, get kind of too fried on it and then take a step back and then work on it for a couple months. And it kind of was in this limbo place and it felt like it needed, there was a part of me that always wanted to go back no matter what, even when I came back, like I want to go back. And then there was a part of me that some of my friends from the expedition that I stay in touch with, you know, they, you know, it was just like, I think it would just be a good button for you for the movie to go back as well. So as I was getting ready to go, I kind of, I went and saw free solo, the, you know, which the big hit, great movie. But when I first saw it, it, I actually got a lot of anxiety because there was me as like the filmmaker that wanted to make a movie. And it's like, how do we make a movie? That's like, that good. Like, how is that possible? And I just started walking around and, and I think it was good to have that moment because it allowed me to identify that there's really two things that are, that I'm trying to accomplish there and they're separate. And, and one is, is more, way more important. And one is the personal reasons to go back there to feel okay and feel closure. And the other is to shoot a, film to capture that on film, but shooting the film, isn't the reason to go there. The reason to go there is to to kind of come to come to terms and come to that spot. And so I kind of gave myself permission that if I went and I just felt closure, then I would be then. And I didn't want to do the movie anymore, then that's okay. Like if, if, if it was really about just moving on with your life, like that is a powerful reason as well. Like, so it's not, so anyway, so, and I would say that going there definitely just, there was a change when I came back where I was just clearer, you know, I was able to go to Eve's Memorial and just kind of have a very emotional moment there. And then, and then also go back up to base camp and just stand there and not feel like anything was going to happen to you because the last two times, last two times, bad things had happened. One of the times they were to me. So that was, that was a big deal. And I think it, it was just a, uh, from a psychological standpoint, just able to, uh, to kind of, kind of close those, those gaps. And I was actually now I was supposed to go be there right now working on another project, but now I feel kind of clear, like I'm not going to have those demons or those, uh, those kind of, you know, things in the back, you know, you want to be uh, courageous as much as possible. And so it feels like I, I'm in a much better space because I did go back and revisit that place. Where is Eve's Memorial and who built that? Uh, there's a group of memorials for the fallen climbers that is uh, right below Lobuche, uh, which is around 16,000 feet. So Scott Fisher. 
and who's you know in the into thin air uh was a guy that had passed away amongst many others so basically if i think if you have a loved one who dies you can pay to have a memorial put there and they're made out of stone and so they made sure they made one and so by the next year there was a memorial for eve there which is really beautiful i like the idea that you have incorporated so much and the little bit of footage that you showed that you that i've seen of it every time there was a scene with eve she's smiling laughing it's like she seems like the kind of person that when you go into a room or when you see her come into a room you're just happy because she's there she had that yeah she had that effect i mean she was oftentimes i mean she just was a very giving person quick to smile quick to laugh and you know very helpful i mean again we ended up connecting because from a story from a story standpoint uh i mean personally we we got along very well but uh from a story standpoint the doctor is going to be the one checking in with everyone everyone there. And, you know, so I would check in with her, how people are doing. And if someone was having a problem, you know, maybe that might be something that, you know, we want to capture on film if they're okay with it. And so I was constantly checking in with her doing those things. And that, that was the type of, you know, she was just a very giving person. I think we all know people that just seem to kind of give way more than they get back. And, and she was one of those people and it's, it's sad. It's sad. And it's, it's hard to understand why someone like that would be taken which I'm sure there are plenty of people that are the opposite, you know, that we're in the same, you know, on the mountain, but you know, who knows how those things work. There's no, there's no real answers for that. That's what the, the randomness of it is what seems so cruel because, you know, she was right there with you. Ron was there and yet it just, uh, just the yeah. way it happened. This whole experience has spanned a few years of your life. You know, the first trip 2014, now we're at uh, 2020 and you're working on making this documentary. How have you changed since that first trip? Well, I think I'm a lot more focused. I mean, because when you have something that emotionally grabs at you, because I, I don't think I really recognize, but I think 2014 also, uh, even though I wasn't involved in the accident uh, as, and not nearly as close as I was in 2015, there's one shot where you just remember, you know, a, uh, as they started the recovery and they were uh, a helicopter would come in with a line and call it long lining and a line hanging down about like a hundred feet below it. And just, they needed to get out the bodies and the only way to get the bodies out are to long use the helicopter. So you have this guy attached to his harness and he's just lifeless at being, you know, taken across base camp so that he can uh, be prepared to take down to Kathmandu. And it's like upon seeing that, I think that, that, kind of just struck me with just that, man, that guy was, that guy six hours ago, that guy was alive. And now that guy is not alive. And, and I think that, that image kind of stuck with me when I got back to New York that really kind of motivated me to like, I don't want to be working on things that I don't care about. And so I was, you know, and, and we all have to do what we have to do, but it, want to be at least working towards things that I really want to do, which is go back to Mount Everest or go be in the mountains and film adventure. And so that kind of helped give narrow the focus there. And that's probably why I was pretty trigger happy when, uh, you know, after talking with Garrett and, and that, that worked out, you know, it wasn't a, a good plan on my part where I didn't have all this money saved to come back. Like, you know, I really had, I mean, if I went back in time, I certainly was not as prepared as I should have been. And, why, when I watch some of my camera footage, you know, I've had some camera DPs like, Mike, I just, I wish you were a better camera guy, you know, when you were there. And I'm like, sorry, I was doing the sound. I was asking the questions. I was doing the camera. It was my first time. It was 16,000 feet. 
but I would say that, and then coming back, just having this singular focus, um, doing the documentary. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, as it's gotten in the later stages now, there's kind of other things, but when it, you know, the first three and a half years, uh, have been about making the story, how, how, how to tell the story, journaling about it, writing scripts, editing it together, showing it to people, getting their comments, journaling about it more, writing more scripts, editing it. So, I mean, this is kind of the third version of doing it. And, and, then going back in 2018 was just this, uh, just kind of massive, you know, month and a half long. We were busy every day writing stuff out, and even now, as I just kind of focus all my energies on it, it's when you then if, you know I try to work 40 to 50 hours a week on it, and it's like there's not enough time in the day to do all the things that are necessary. But I'm trying to trying as hard as I can to get them done. Be and it's just the fact that wow, you know, finally at the age of forty three, it's like how many times when I was a musician was you know if I was able to focus like this, maybe it would have been better, you know. But now I know how to get projects done, how to how to focus on them, and and just that it has this gravitas behind it. It's not you know, it's not just some story that I I don't care about. Uh, It's like this story that I really need to to show. And I did have a couple, I've done a couple screenings uh, and did one in January and then also one in February. And they were just local. One was at a local library with about 40 people and ages 14 to 80. It's kind of this cross section of people. And, uh, and that's a lot of people to come out, especially in this small town that I'm living in now. And so I sat at the back and just kind of had this incredible experience. I mean, I sat there with a notebook ready to watch when people would shift in their chairs you know, people start coughing, they get up to get a glass of water, you know, not just to see when people kind of became disinterested, you know, like when did, because it's just been me, I had done a couple small screenings with friends, but for the most part, they all know me. So they're going to like it, you know, no matter what. And so I need to show people that don't know my story and that see it for the first time. And it was, it was a better response than I could imagine because for the 90 minutes that the, that it happened, uh, you know, two things happened. One is they paid attention but nobody went to the bathroom. One person started coughing, but he had something in his throat. And but then the wife didn't feel like she could get water because it interrupted everybody. It was pretty funny. But they but they were just frozen, and it, it was good. And at the end, I mean, people had cried. There were tears. I mean, uh, many people came up to me. But I also noticed kind of a, and this was something special. Where although it's you know my story, it's uh, you know Eve's story, it's Garrett's story, it's Haley's story, it's Randall's story. It's all of our stories but they were able to put their own story on top of it. Like somehow it became something else, um, whether it's, you know, everyone's lost someone, you know, so maybe it, it, it triggers emotions like that or, or whatever it is, you know, the something in there, it seemed like people were able to, it becomes theirs all of a sudden. And that was kind of a magical, a magical moment. And it seemed to happen. I did it at the first one. And then I did one at the Explorers club in New York and, uh, it was a similar type of feeling and there, and it was just like, it's just like all of a sudden they have this, they become part of it and how they connect with it or why they connect with it. It's like, as their own reasons. And I think that's something that definitely inspires me now to do the rest of the work that it takes to, to deliver uh, a final version of, of it. Yeah. You know, you've got the basis of a really good film here. And so you just got to tie it all together, tighten it up and. That, of course, that's where all the all the details. That's where all the the uh, the admin days. Those are not the fun days. <laughs> I'd, I'd rather mm-hmm. be editing <laughs> or shooting. So I know anyone that wants to could go and watch the trailer for your documentary. How can they find that, and uh, how can they get in touch with you if they want to? Sure. Uh, well, I have a website that's at boundtoeverest.com, dot uh, Just uh, just as it sounds, B O U N D T O 
Everest, E-V-E-R-E-S-T. Or you can email me at uh, michael.churton at gmail.com. That's M-I-C-H-A-E-L dot C-H-U-R-T-O-N at gmail. Well, it's uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing the final product. So, and when it comes out, of course, in the, the uh, email and website and everything, we'll have links to all that in the show notes for this episode as well. So people can go there and, and find that stuff. And uh, looking forward to, to the documentary when it's done. And thanks for sharing your story. Well, thank you for having me. You know, even after hearing about what happened to Michael on those trips to Everest, I would still love to make that trek up to base camp. It just seems like such an incredible place, and you're guaranteed to meet some amazing people there. Maybe someday, who knows. Okay, a couple of things before we close the door on this episode. First up, right now I'm working on the next episode of Raw Audio, which is the bonus content that's available exclusively to Patreon supporters. And every one of these includes some intense calls to 911, as well as the story that goes along with it to tell you what was happening and how it turned out. If you'd like to get every one of those bonus episodes, you can join at whatwasthatlike.com support. And finally, I got this message from a listener named April, and it was related to a previous episode titled Spence is a Lighthouse Keeper. You can listen to that at whatwasthatlike.com slash 40 since it's episode 40. This was actually a really popular episode, and part of it was how Spence was describing his work on the island and the fact that the vast majority of his time is spent alone. So April had some thoughts about that. And here's the audio message that she sent me. Hi, Scott. It's April. I'm a listener in London, England. I recently discovered your podcast and I've been working my way through the back catalogue. And this has definitely become one of my favourite podcasts. Um, I listened to the Lighthouse episode and I thought I would just send you a message about it. Um, I'm a lawyer in the city of London, so on the face of it, you wouldn't have thought that Spencer and I had much in common. And probably if you asked me a few months ago, I would have agreed with that. Um, I was working long hours, going 100 miles an hour, you know, going to the gym, social life, networking, training, all sorts of things, um, sort of running around all the time. But since coronavirus happened, my life has changed quite significantly and I have spent most of my time in my flat in central London and uh, I am mainly alone apart from my cats, two cats. And um, I know that probably uh, a lot of people would be worried that I would be lonely or isolated or sad and I know a lot of people are feeling those those emotions in these times but the truth is for me it's actually been really nice and I've sent I've sort of felt this my body sort of breathing a sigh of relief when I realize I don't have to see anyone Um, And I think there's so much pressure to be a certain way, not just in jobs like mine, but generally I think people expect that humans are social creatures, they want to be in groups, they want to, you know, be meeting with friends and family and partners. Um, And if you're not like that, then maybe there's something wrong with you or there's something strange or or 
you know, you have some sort of illness. And and actually, listening to that episode um, and how comfortable and matter-of-fact Spencer is about his joy in being alone was, was really wonderful. Um, there was not sort of any inkling of self-consciousness about his choices and desires, and I found that really comforting and familiar. And it... Um, made me feel like I wasn't alone in wanting to be alone, which is quite special. So thank you, and thanks to Spencer. I love that perspective. Thank you very much, April, for sending that in. I'm actually kind of the same way, in the sense that I don't really mind being alone with my thoughts. I don't know, we're just all different. But I did really enjoy hearing April's perspective on that. And right now, there's some editing that's waiting for me for the next episode, so I need to get back to work. See you next time.